broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in phoenix arizona it's time for valley business radio spotlighting the valley's best businesses and the people who lead them Hello and welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I'm joined in the studio today by Nareet Rubinstein, CEO and co-founder of Dovely. Welcome, Nareet. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm excited by what you're doing because your, your software solution and everything that you're building is tackling a really important issue that touches everybody's lives. So there's lots of different dimensions to what we're going to talk about today. We'll talk about your company, how you're building it. But let's start with you introducing the problem. What does Dovely solve? Dovely is solving for three major problems, really four. The first is that two-thirds of the U.S. population have errors or issues on their credit. And so you can think about it as 70% of the population has a credit score that's lower than it should be. And when you look at where those people can turn— there's not that many choices. There's definitely no technology solution using innovation. Uh, and then there are a lot of companies that are marketing to consumers with the goal of matching them with a financial product. And those companies end up disqualifying between 50 to 80% of their leads. So they have a huge kind of money hemorrhaging issue. Uh, and then the last one is that there are a lot of lenders and financial institutions, hedge funds that are making decisions based on inaccurate data. Uh, but the real consumer problem is that consumers are getting declined every day, uh, unfairly and unnecessarily. Now, there's some interesting issues in here I think we should probably unpack. So the first is we have seen over the last 50, maybe 80 years, the increasing use of technology in financial services. But it's been asymmetrical. For the most part, this has been on the large company side, the innovation and development, and it has served their primary interests. Uh, and I think of things like credit card processing and others where really the, the, the benefits are driving the on the company side and the transaction and the middle people in the taking right. the fees, et cetera, extracting value. And consumers have not had a lot of those options or they were very expensive. If somebody wanted to go into business for themselves and take credit card payments, mm-hmm. they really had a lot of right. kind of bad options to deal with. And then PayPal and Stripe and other things have come along, and that doesn't solve everything. But when it comes to credit, it really is the sense that the ordinary, everyday woman and man on the street is at a disadvantage because all the technology is working in favor of Mm -hmm. the financial companies. And you're saying, hey, we've got a technology solution that can help. Yes, It can't fix your problem actual personal mistakes in life, right. your poor choices, right? But it can fix errors that are on your reports that are unnecessarily disadvantageous. <laughs> There's a lot of syllables there. Yeah. Anyway, they're working against you. They are. And they're hard to find. You could do this manually, you know? You could do it on your own. Uh, people that do it on their own have a 15%, 1-5 success rate. The problem with the system today is that Nobody's looking out for the consumer. So even the credit bureaus who are not, and there's three big ones, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, they're not intentionally hurting you as a, as a customer. They just don't haven't made it a priority to get the data accurate. Uh, and their business is made by selling your data. And so you're, me and you are not the end user. Businesses are the end user. Uh, so no one is kind of looking out for the consumer in the equation and the problem with credit is it's a very 
uh, difficult thing to understand and navigate, and it's very punitive. It's it's like kind of like trust. You can spend years and years trying to build it, but you you kind of ruin it within seconds, uh, and it's, and it's hard to navigate. And so you kind of put all these things together, and as a as a just general person, you know, living your life, it's hard to know what to do. Yeah, and there's a sense in which with information asymmetry, we're just pulling out all the big words here, it's all a black box that you don't necessarily even understand. Certainly, the scores themselves and the calculation of those scores are deeply guarded secrets in some way, right? So, you don't necessarily know, well, if I have lower credit than I want and I want to make it better, what do I do? There's conflicting information. Some people are telling you you should open more credit cards and some people are telling you you should close them. Some people are telling you you should use a certain method to pay down your balances and utilization scores and all the kind of hacking and information out there. But fundamentally, you're dealing with a foundational layer of data that for the most part, unless you pull credit reports and know what you're looking at, you don't necessarily you're not dealing directly with the source and even then you may not catch errors and Correct. things that are working against you so in comes Dovely. right how'd you get the idea for this so i was hired uh to run to be the ceo of a what i call now a traditional credit repair company and uh it was it was acquired by a private equity firm they brought me in as ceo and i saw that the way we were dealing with the problem was by throwing a lot of bodies at it. And every single player in the space has a call center. And it's much more, our business was much more around getting good call center agents who can close a sale than it was around delivering a good service to customers. And that's exactly what the industry is today. And I met my co-founder, Uh, because the credit bureaus will not sell you reports directly. So we needed a reseller to obtain the data. And when him and I first met, A, we hit it off just right away. And I kind of had lunch with him, and I thought to myself, I have to get this guy to come work for me because he can leapfrog our our, uh, learning curve almost immediately. He had spent over 20 years in the consumer credit space. And B, I have to get this guy's brain somehow into technology. And so we didn't end up doing the technology piece at that company. Uh, And I took a little bit of a hiatus in between. But uh, when this kind of, after I left that company, this idea was still constantly burning inside of me because it's everywhere that you go. I mean, I go to Target and the guy in front of me is asking, you know, do you want a red card? And the guy in front of me says, no, my credit sucks, right? So everywhere you go, people are struggling with credit. And so I couldn't shake it. And I knew that I knew how to solve it. And uh, so that's kind of how the idea came about. Let's go for a minute just to compare and contrast into that world of traditional credit repair. This is not a service I've availed myself of personally, so I don't have the experience of it. But I hear, well, when I used to listen to FM radio, you would hear ads on the radio and things of that nature. They're Mm -hmm. promoting services that will help you fix it. So what happens typically? Like, what are the solutions? Why does it require so many people? What are the call centers selling? So, kind of get us, give right. it, paint a picture. I'm not look, looking here to throw anybody under the bus. I mean, this is an established it's way an established of doing industry, business. And it's like not any, innovative. Like any industry, there are good players and bad players. But how does um, it work fundamentally? What are so, the moving parts? So fundamentally, how it works is these companies are buying a lot of leads from 
from other companies like the ones disqualifying, right? And they're buying a lot of leads and they're putting them into a dialer. And then that dialer connects with a human. Uh, and then they have call center agents who normally are trained, I mean, on at best trained a week, uh, at worst trained a couple hours and really have no business giving you credit advice. And these call center agents are having a consultation with the person that's on the phone trying to repair the credit. It's usually about a 30 to 45-minute call. That agent is determining what items to dispute and how, when, like what the reason codes are. They input that into a software-type solution. That solution will create, uh, will auto-populate letters. And then they print those letters out and snail mail them to the credit bureaus. The credit bureaus then have people on the other end, you know, teams in the Philippines or wherever else, who are opening those letters and then keying it into their system. So there's a lot of manual work both for the company disputing and for the credit bureaus. What are typically the consumers who's choosing to hire the company to do this for them? What are they paying? What does it cost? So the the typical engagement is about $150 for the first month and then $100 a month every month thereafter. Average customer will stay on for nine months, roughly, nine to 12 months. Does it work? I mean, are people seeing their scores improve? I mean, some are. uh, It's not nearly as effective as we are. Uh, You know, it's hit or miss. So some are working, some aren't. A lot of that has to do with how well trained that agent is or how much they really know, right? If it's an agent that you happen to get lucky and talk to an agent who's been there for two years and really understands some of the nuances in credit, then it might work better than someone who just got, you know, got hired yesterday and is on the phone today, right? So a lot of it is dependent on the individual that you're speaking with. And that's another factor that we try to eliminate is there is no, it's, it's a, we've turned it into a science. It's an algorithm that does it. The inefficiency that you just described is amazing because if you think of the volume of these uh, outbound calls, first of all, the very idea that you're finding somebody in financial difficulty and then calling them up to try to sell them something is already interesting. But right. um in any case, if if you can help, then it's not necessarily pernicious. So you, the the amount of outbound calls uh, to try to get somebody to sign up for the service, and then what begins to happen is so incredibly manual, mm-hmm. and the letters and the snail mail, and yep. then opening them up. Yeah, it's a very inefficient process. If you look at the credit repair kind of industry today, it's not nearly as big as it could be because a it's very expensive. So not a lot of people can afford $100 a month. And B, it's it's ineffective. And so anyone who has tried credit repair has no desire to go anywhere near that. The whole experience by talking, who wants to talk to a call center agent for an hour these days? I mean, it's just not, we're not, we're not programmed to do that no. anymore. And so there's a much larger opportunity if you made it more accessible and you both from a financial perspective but also from a technology perspective where people can go whenever they want however they want and do it all online and and let's also make another clear differentiation this is not about consolidating debt and doing that kind of no, stuff this is about not. fixing errors correct and repairing credit which is only well the part you're repairing is the part that's bad because of these mistakes Material Correct. errors on the report. And there's, to be clear, there are really three types of people that could benefit from this service. One are people that have real errors or inaccuracies on their report. So medical collections is a really big error that a lot of people suffer from. An example there would be 
you were in an accident, you had insurance, and then the insurance company is negotiating with the hospital while that negotiation is taking place, it lands on your credit. You've done nothing wrong. You're paying your insurance bill on time. They resolve it, but it never comes off your credit. And so that's one big issue that a lot of the population is facing. So there's a massive subset of people that have material, 40 million people have material errors on their credit, much larger when you go to kind of non-material. What's the difference? So material is uh, impacting your score significantly. Yeah. Um, so like think of 100 points, right? And then there's more th- more people that fall in the 50-point tranche of errors. But you could have two or three of those, right? So then you're still looking at 100 to 150 points. The, the second subset of people are people that didn't—they either fell into hard, you know, circumstance or made— uh, Accurately made a bad decision. So I like to use the example of students. 70% of students ruin their credit within one year of graduating. That is not malicious. That is purely a lack of education. And then what happens, you know, they, they're in college. They have all these people throwing credit cards and things their way. Exactly. I was going to say it's lack of education and a predatory uh, environment in which they are targeted like no Correct. other demographic. Correct. Because of their lack of education. Correct. So, And so then they get into the situation where they don't have auto pay set up. They miss a payment. They miss one payment. Their credit's now down, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 points. And they go on. They have you know, high-paying jobs, and they, they want to buy a house. And they have this ding on their credit that's dragging them down seven, eight, ten years later. That's not—we feel they shouldn't have to suffer for a mistake they made 10 years ago. We still can help that person. So even though it's an accurate mistake, we are able to help them. There is is a subset of the population that try to kind of game the system, right? They want to use credit repair to show they have a higher score and then, in essence, go go out, get another credit card, uh, default on payments, and then use credit repair again. We will be able to help somebody like that, but it's very quickly we'll be able to see that, A, we'll be able to identify them before they come in most likely, and then B, we'll be able to see that they're trying to game the system and they're not going to benefit from the service for very long. Right, and and that gets us into the question of how does this actually work? There is automation. There is technology. There is machine learning running in the background. So somebody signs up, they say, yes, I want to do this. What's beginning to happen in the background? So what happens is we, uh, someone enrolls, we, first thing we do is we make sure it's them. So we ask them a set of three questions that only they should be able to answer. So I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with like, you have a mortgage in this amount and you select it. If they've answered those those answers correctly, we soft pull their credit. Now, the difference between a soft pull and a hard pull is it does not ding your credit. So nothing we do will hurt your credit. Then uh, we display your credit uh, report, dashboard, and and all your parameters. We show you the negative items that are weighing down your score. There's one action that you as a customer must take from a legality perspective. You need to tell us which items you want us to dispute. So if you're a victim of identity fraud and you have 12 items on your credit, you will select all 12 items and then you hit submit. Your job as the consumer is pretty much done at that point. What we then do is we take into account hundreds of different credit factors depending on your specific credit case. We developed a scientific algorithm that will look at all those different credit factors. So 
who the creditor is, how long it's been on your report, what's the amount, uh, what's the reason that it's in negative status. Every trade line, so a trade line could be a mortgage, a credit card, has 32 different parameters within it. So our algorithm determines which of those 32 parameters to select, and then we immediately generate how we're going to dispute those with the credit bureaus, and then we're electronically submitting those disputes to all three credit bureaus. We're then um, monitoring your credit on a daily basis to see if any changes have occurred, and then every 30 days our algorithm is kind of regenerating another uh, report or or dispute to the, to the credit bureaus, and then we're disputing another round with the credit bureaus. So everything we do is automated. There's no human intervention, which is why it's infinitely scalable. It's really the only credit repair solution you can even enroll in online today. Uh, you can enroll to talk to a call center agent to schedule a meeting, but you can't actually get your repair going online today. Right. And then to contrast the footprint of how traditional repair companies, I mean, you were t- thousands of call center agents and the people running the, the company itself. From a, an administrative and operations perspective, how many people are working at your operation and contrast that to the other. I mean, this is a very significant difference. I mean, it's huge. We have a uh, inbound customer support person, and that's it. Because our customers might have questions, they want to know, you know, where things are. So we want to make sure that someone picks up the phone to talk to them. But there's nobody manning the disputes. There's nobody. It's all done electronically. On the technical side, to develop and bring the product to market, how did that take place? My co-founder, Tedis, started working on it a year before I kind of joined with a developer. And then I joined in April of 2018, and we've been working on the product ever since. And we launched the product in June of last year. So it took us probably a good two years to get the product into market. Let's talk about your personal experience as a leader for a minute, because you've worked in a lot of different kinds of environments. You've been responsible for very large operations, large numbers of people, complex P&Ls. And now in this role, you're much more of a nimble entrepreneur, entrepreneur, and and yet you're still trying to execute on uh, solving it at a level of complexity in terms of what you're the, the touch points you have with financial services industries, with partners, with things of that nature. So Give us a little bit of your backstory as a, a, a developing executive and what got you to this role. And now what's different? What do you like about that? What's What do you miss about the old way? So I started my career in the Israeli army. Uh, I was actually born in Israel, but I grew up in San Diego and lived there my entire formative years from age four to 18. Went back to voluntarily serve in the Israeli army, which was a fantastic experience in life in general, but also people, how to get along with people, how to collaborate, uh, team building, leadership. From there, I started working for a very large tech company in Israel that relocated me to San Jose. Uh, and then there, uh, after I was brought on to manage a, a large project. They had just bought a small company and they wanted my help kind of integrating the billing solutions. From there, I, I worked for Salesforce, which to this day, is one of the best companies I've ever worked for. Uh, I was there very early on, so I had I had the I was fortunate enough to work with Mark Benioff, the CEO, directly, and a lot of the lessons for how I have led and become a leader have come from my days at Salesforce. So, Mark Benioff's philosophy was very much about first and foremost, you take care of your employees; they then take care of your customers that then takes care of your revenue. That was kind of the hierarchy. And so 
that's really been my MO uh, as a manager and and an executive and leader. Um, after Salesforce, I, I went to business school and just decided to transition to consumer packaged goods marketing. I worked on some very cool brands like Meow Mix, Kibbles and Bits, really understood the marketing side of things. Uh, I was just talking this morning as I was dropping my kids off at their uh, hippy-dippy co-op that they go to <laughs> two days a week. And we were talking about um, commercials that get stuck in your head. And now Kibbles and Bits is yeah. a flashback to my well, childhood. Well, so meow, 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 yeah. meow, 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 Everyone knows the Meow Mix commercial. So being able to do a commercial for Meow Mix and, you know, that was that was a very cool experience. Uh, from there, I decided to move to L.A. and took a job with Green Dot, which is the largest prepaid debit card provider. Uh, and they what they really they were very revolutionary in what they did in that before Green Dot, anyone who didn't have a credit card didn't have access to make any payments online. So people were going to the phone company to pay their phone bills. They were going to the utility company to pay the utility bills. Green Dot made that much more accessible because anyone who had cash and a social security could put money on a card and go into a Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Walmart and have a credit card, essentially a credit card. So that helped me get into the what's called the underbanked or unbanked consumer demographic, which is a very similar demographic to the one that we serve at Dovely. That was a great experience. I started as an individual contributor. Uh, I took on a very high-profile project, which then led me to be the general manager of the Green Dot division, which at the time was a $240 million, $230 million division of a public company. Uh, and that was the first time I was overseeing all aspects of a company. So product, marketing, finance, sales, uh, did that for a couple more years and then got recruited by this private equity firm to be uh, a CEO. The, when I joined that company, there was, it was only a call center. I had no colleagues. I had nobody to bounce ideas off of. Uh, it was all call center agents. So, um, the going back to kind of your nimble mentality, A, I'm an immigrant, I'm Israeli, like we we are nimble, we are scrappy, we are resourceful. That's always in my DNA. It will always be in my DNA. And even when I ran companies that were very big with a lot of money and resources, it would always irk me when people would spend a lot of money and say, oh, it's the company's money. You know, like I wanted people to feel like it's it's their money. Uh, and so that, that's just my mentality. I always operate where I have a big vision for where we're trying to go, but I'm, I'm very good at knowing where we are today and how to bridge the gap of getting there. Cause it's, you can't just leap. You've got to take milestones. Um, from there, Tedis and I were going to spin off and start our own company, but I was fortunate, uh, to meet Thomas Gorney, who's the CEO of Nextiva. He was an investor in that credit repair company. And so, when we decided to divest that company, he reached out to me and recruited me, I would say, fair, very aggressively to come join him in uh, Nextiva and run all of uh, sa run sales and operations for Nextiva. And that's what brought you to the That's Valley. what brought me to Phoenix. So then I moved from L.A. to Phoenix. That was uh, in 2017, summer. Uh, great company. Thomas is an amazing, brilliant founder, CEO, uh, but this credit thing just couldn't—it it wasn't leaving me. It was, it was hard for me to shake. Uh, I felt like you, I, I, I was very passionate about it. Um, How come? What, what, what do you think got under your skin about that? 
just the ability to impact so many people's life. It's something that impacts every aspect of your life. And I think that short of your physical well-being, your financial well-being is the next most important thing. Uh, it's the stressor. It's a stressor in your life. It's uh, It can be the difference between being happy or sad. It's it's money. I mean, if you have a good credit score, it's that's direct savings that you put away every month or more. It makes more disposable income available to you. And working on something like that just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a great answer because honestly, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, the, the amount of shame, fear, you know, just general degradation of our quality of life that comes from financial stress is enormous. Enormous. And, the you know, the amount of systemic uh, forces working against people who don't have the benefits of that, you know, the, the, the amount of moral judgment that gets laid over mm-hmm. the top of it, you know, I, I'm reminded of the brilliant talk uh, by the, the Danish uh, historian who said, listen, poverty is not a lack of character. It's a lack of cash. Right. Like We, we need to treat this with a, an appropriate solution rather than judging people who are in difficult financial circumstances. Right. So, so you've got this, something about this got to you and you couldn't let it go. There's, there's and you also- left a really great I left position. an amazing position. There, there's also something that both my co-founder and I are immigrants and migrated as country. I was four. He was seven. And I think saw our parents come from having status to all of a sudden being nothing and not being able to rent an apartment because they didn't have the credit st- status. And so I think we both kind of have that carrying throughout our lives uh, of just wanting to be – we're very empathetic and we care about people and – you know, I, so I suspect that it goes back even to that. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's very formative. Now, I want to talk a little bit about where the interests align here because my assumption, which may be incorrect, is that if you're out there trying to help people improve their credit, there are plenty of players in the industry for whom they'd rather they didn't have uh, good credit. In other words, they make more money by being able to charge higher fees, higher percentages, things of that nature. But I'm starting to realize as you've been talking, and I listened to some of the things you said earlier, that in fact, uh, it it actually is in many different people's interest. For In other words, if I'm a lender and I make my money by lending, if I'm denying people f- for applications – and there's no fundamental reason I should be doing right. that. It's just errors. a lot of money on the Then table. I'm leaving money on the table. So talk a little bit about, you know, you, you proudly say you are the consumer-focused solution here. And I think and that's clearly true. How does that position you amongst the other players in the industry? Do they like what you're doing? Are they uh, threatened by it? Does it uh, how does that all shake down? No, I think, I think everyone likes what we're doing. Uh, there's definitely... There are definitely a lot of products out there that cater to the subprime customer. Subprime is anyone, you know, sub 600. Uh, And some of those products could diminish or go away if all of a sudden, you know, we take this massive amounts of customers and bring them up. But the the increase that these companies are going to get from not turning down such a vast number of people definitely outweighs the – the, the potential money loss from servicing some of these customers. So you look at a, a variety of different companies out there. There are a lot of people trying to solve some of these solutions or, or, or 
have products that are catering to people who want to improve their credit. There's the whole credit monitoring landscape. Credit Karma just got acquired for $7.1 billion. They've done a phenomenal job bringing, I think, making credit mainstream, bringing a lot of awareness to credit. I love what they do. I think they have a great product and a great user experience. My challenge with what they do is that for a large subset of the population, they're telling them that they have a problem, but they're not giving them the remedies to solve that problem. Well, the remedies they're offering, and I'm I'm a user of Credit Karma. I like the service as well. But what they're telling me I should do, again, this is just one man's point of view. What I see when I log in is they're telling me I should get these credit cards or loans that they have already arranged that I'm sure there's a vague that they make there, a lot of money. They make That's money they on. Make their money That's on. why you get acquired for right. $7.1 billion when your service is free. Correct. If you're not the... What is it that goes back in the days? If you're not paying for a service, you're not the customer, you're the product. Right. It's like Facebook and Gmail and yeah. everything else. Like somebody somewhere is making money because Absolutely. our data and our attention is is here. Right. Right. Um, so what they've told me, and I haven't ever accepted this, is I need to get this or this or this credit card. I'm pre-approved or this is a good fit for somebody right. with my needs or things of that nature. And, and I can see how y- your point is very valid. Aside from giving me more selling me more financial products, there's nothing in there that helps me fix what's wrong, except for some of the forums where people are providing advice, like here's some strategies for how to make a payment after uh, the yeah. statement closes, but before the due date. I mean, things I of mean, that I nature. I mean, I think in fairness to them, they do a good job giving education on what comprises the score or what are some suggestions that you might do. Bringing some transparency Correct. to what has been Correct. mysterious. De- demystifying it, Very good. if you will, right? Uh, the other thing that they do is they allow you to dispute one item with one of the bureaus, uh, which is flawed for a number of reasons. One— if you're a victim of identity fraud and you have 12 items, A, you want to dispute all, all 12. B, how do you know which one of the 12 to dispute first? Uh, so that And then C, you want that disputed with all three credit bureaus. So increasing your score with one of three bureaus is ineffective because if you're going to get out of – if you're going to apply for a financial product, there's only a third of a chance they're going to select – that one bureau that you've repaired the credit for. Or, or as you mentioned earlier, uh, you want to lease uh, an apartment and you don't know, you does don't the know. landlord or the property management company, are they using TransUnion right. or Experian? You don't necessarily so, know. Exactly. So, so you want your score improved with all three. Furthermore, if you're doing any serious financial purchase, then they're doing what's called a tri-merge where they're pulling all three. So if you have a 750 with one and you still have a 550 with the other two, you're still kind of dead in the water and not going to get that financial product. So, again, I think they're they're not in the business of credit repair, so I don't expect them to have a full-blown solution. And I think given their lack of uh, focus on credit repair, they're doing the best that they can do, uh, but it's not enough. One of the issues that you mentioned early on in this conversation, um, which really resonates with me, is the degree to which this uh, entire system has a punitive feel to it. Some of those moral judgments that we talked about, but also some of the kind of legalistic ways in which this is all managed. And and I'm struck by, uh, just to put an unlikely juxtaposition here, I'm struck by recent news out of LA County, for example, that 66,000 people with cannabis convictions below a certain threshold will now be having their records expunged because the DA and others have realized like this is not 
we're putting an unnecessary burden on people's lives. And, you know, listen, this is, feel free to have whatever point of view you want to have about cannabis in general, but we're starting to realize that the criminal justice system has been unfairly rigged and punitively so. It targets unfairly certain demographics by nature of the way this has been played out in our society. And, um, And it's not right. It doesn't actually match what we're trying to get at here. When you speak about the underbanked, right, that we're talking about segments of the population that for any number of reasons are trying to conduct their financial lives outside of the banking system, the banking system, either because they can't or because it's too far or a lack of a historical distrust, because after all, people in my community haven't been served well by those folks over there in the bank. And by the way, this this could play out on racial lines, but it probably, and it, I'm sure it does, but it also plays out on other lines. I'm thinking poor white farmers might have the same right. experience of predatory lenders and banks not serving their interests, not, you know, et cetera. So you're really getting into the heart of some some thorny issues here, or you could. I don't know if right. this is... Uh, what, what's your what's your general reaction to some of the things I'm throwing out here? Is this is this motivating? Is this an issue for you? Do you kind of it's not what's driving this? What what are your thoughts on the way in which the system has been structured as a punitive system? I mean, it's it's horrible. Like it, it, it's uh, again, I don't think that anyone's malicious. I don't think that any of these people have set out to let's let's stick it to the customer, let's stick it to the end user, but the system is set up in a way where. We as customers are paying a big price for inefficiencies and bureaucratic companies and a lot of people making a lot of money uh, and really not being pro-customer. And there are laws. There are some laws that uh, FACRA is one of them that looks out for the consumer. And that's how we're able to dispute and get some of these items off, off people's reports. But in general, somebody needs to bridge the gap between the end user and the credit bureaus, we feel we actually have a huge opportunity to do that because we are creating a much better, more efficient way of identifying the errors and disputing them. And eventually it's going to get to the point where we can just do that with the bureaus without even the customer being in the mix, right? So there's a there's a big opportunity here to kind of take on the industry and help. It's not going to be an overnight thing. It's going to take time. But and some of the bureaus, I think, will be more open to it than others. And we see that in their innovation and their products today. Let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about the future of credit and credit repair and all the rest. I mean, obviously, you're making this play now. It's solving an immediate problem. Uh, you're getting results Right. It, it, yeah, your solution has, has been shown yeah. to increase credit scores by 54 points on average after just six months. Four, actually. but Four yeah. now. Okay. We need to update the yeah. PR copy here. <laughs> um, what does the service cost? Right now, if you come to us directly, it's 39 a month. But if you come through one of our partners, it's on average 29 a month. As you look toward the future, you've got you've currently got an affordable solution that di- that tackles a, a, a pretty intractable problem and people get results. So we could just stop there and say, this is great. You just need to get more people to know about it. Right. What's your vision for the future? What's the roadmap? What's your grand scheme for how this you want this to play out? Much bigger because first, even though we're a third of any other solution in the marketplace and we're much more effective, 
the we still feel that it's too expensive. So for a lot of people, $29, $39 is, is a lot of money a month. And so we have an ability to drive that cost down even further because we don't have any sales costs or, you know, right now we're not really doing any marketing. We're acquiring users through channel partners. And so the, and our gross margins are very high because our only cost to service the customer is the cost of the data that we're paying the credit bureaus. And the one person who answers the phone. I mean, there are obviously administrative and operating costs beyond we're that. spending a lot of money on development and continuing to enhance the product. Our goal is to continue to drive that cost down, improve our product, create a very, we're accessible now, but to create an extremely accessible product and then uh, create a system by which we have uh, vetted out products for our customers. We are offering them additional services that they can choose to to enroll in. And then we are creating for lenders and hedge funds a uh, kind of a machine that will help them determine what somebody's true credit score should be and by when. And so you can think of that as, Lenders have a person coming, uh, have a person who's on paper a 550. Dovely will be able to say, no, this person will be a 700 within three months of our service. So then that lender will lend to that person today. That provides a huge benefit to the customer. It also provides a huge value to the lender. And so immediately creating more value for that person before we've even done anything is really the the end the end goal. That's fascinating, and it and it speaks to um, some creative partnerships and you know selling the concept uh, to some people that might not realize there's an opportunity there. I mean, when you talked about the arbitrage that comes from knowledge, correct? Right, the ability to get to somebody earlier yeah. than everybody else could be very valuable. It's very valuable. And the only way to do that is obviously to scale up the user base and to get more accurate pattern recognition and things of that nature. Totally nailed it. But now we have an interesting set of ethical and political challenges because we've seen companies that wanted to get as close to the users as possible to serve them, uh, whether it's with news about their family and friends mm -hmm. uh, in their feed, for example, or, or others who then have found themselves... Um, whether intentionally or accidentally, uh, as repositories of the most nuanced and uh, data on human beings uh, ever in the right. history of humanity, right? And the choices they make, and uh, you know, whether choices in the UI, UX, choices in the way they use data, choices in the way they create products for other people who want to sell to those folks. And by the way, I don't have a ideological point of view on any of this. It's just very interesting to observe. Right. So if you run this forward ten years and you've achieved the level of market penetration five that years. you have five years like that, you've achieved that that level of scale. What are the pitfalls that come with that that you need to be thinking about today? That's a great question. Uh, I think the industry, right? So the industry is under huge attack today, and rightfully so. And so we actually like that it's under attack. We don't think that the current industry should stay intact. Uh, it's it's very anti-consumer. But what could happen is we become— a kind of uh, we, we get 
bundled into that and and there come regulations out that you can't really do credit repair at all and it's already illegal in the state of Georgia for example uh, now we feel we can mitigate that risk because one of the great things I learned from Green Dot was how to partner with compliance and re- you know, regulators to help actually be the leader in the industry and shed a light on a very bad industry. Um, the other kind of you know big pitfalls are what could happen is with blockchain, which I, I still think we're a good 15 years away from it touching this space, but if we can get to a point where blockchain is is replacing the current system altogether, then then you know that's another area where potentially uh, our our model becomes obsolete. Presumably, because less errors Correct. are in the record. Correct. I mean, the, the, at least the, theor- the the core thesis of blockchain is that with these distributed ledgers, you have you have less opportunity for abuse on the one hand. So hopefully identity theft Mm -hmm. becomes a thing of the past when it's increasingly difficult. Although as we were talking about before we turned the the microphones on, or or maybe it was after, no, it was before. The the biggest security threat is always the the human user Mm -hmm. uh, who falls for things that they shouldn't. They're tricked by phishing schemes or things of that nature. It's not even that, you know, the the, the, the evil enemy is out there. When I had... um, uh, folks from the two largest title companies in Arizona who are also leaders of the Land Title Association of Arizona, they spoke at length about wire fraud and what a major threat wire fraud is daily. Millions and millions of dollars are being sucked out of accounts uh, overseas instantaneously and you can't get it back. And the way it works is you're buying a new home and you've been in conversations with your real estate agent, your loan officer, your title company, so on, and you get an email in your inbox from your title officer. Hey, uh, Rick, it's Sally. Uh, these are very generic white people, yeah. apparently, in my <laughs> in my metaphor. Um, and uh, just need you to update some things. The, the transaction's moving along just fine. Just spoke to so-and-so. And right. that's the actual name of right. your agent. Right. Um, just need you to re-enter the information on this form so we can update the record. There's a thing in there you click. And when you do that, your money disappears yeah. instantly. And so there's a lot of real bad things happening, yeah. right? So we can presumably eliminate all those. Circling back to your point, I think you're right that the the blockchain innovations are further away because we're going to have to work through uh, national sovereignty issues first and who's not interested right. in having this kind of thing. But that's and, a separate- and we also think that if and when blockchain becomes relevant for this industry, we're going to be the ones that bring it to the industry. Exactly. Right. Once once you have an established solution and then you can start to to slowly, you know, it becomes the 3.11 and then the 4.0 instead of we're going to change everything right. tomorrow with this exactly. glorious idea. So I, I really like that. So, but, but, but your point was partnerships are really going to matter because how you mitigate getting regulated out of existence is by having partnerships where your solution now becomes the de facto solution. Instead of being a threat to compliance, you're the partner in ensuring right. compliance. Right. How do you see that playing out? Obviously, you need to grow what you're building right now, but how do you build for that five-year future where you've achieved that level of, of uh I think so, a presence? lot of it is just understanding who the regulatory – what the regulatory arms are. So is it the FTC? Is it the CFPB? Is it – whatever the government – regulations are who's the one who is driving that and then 
really understanding what's motivating those people and then educating those people. And I think that's going to be part of our job is having that level of education of why we're different, how we're different, how we truly do care about the customer. It's a very interesting analogy. I was just listening this morning on the way in here to Dr. Mark Hyman, a functional medicine doctor, talk about the food system and the way food is produced and sold and food industry lobbyists and the fact that there are 142 lobbyists for every member of Congress trying to make sure that the way we eat in this country, which by the way, I don't think anybody thinks is ideal. If you look at obesity, diabetes, we have a very broken food system and there are deep pockets trying to keep it the same. Right. I really think we should be tackling these issues head on. I envision, for example, as you were talking, I was thinking, man, we need to have a show here that's called like the way we do things and why it's not necessary or something. And we would deal with financial services and foreign policy and the food system and the criminal justice system. There's a lot we take for granted. Absolutely. And there are then people like yourself trying to innovate and help and say, listen, if your credit score is lower than it should be because you don't know how to, or it, it, because of the unwieldy nature of trying to fix those errors, we can help you. Right. 20 or 30 bucks a month or whatever. Now, do people need to stay on this forever or? No, I mean, the average engagement is about six to 12 months. What we do find, though, is that people want to stay on forever uh, because once you have bad credit and you repair it, you don't ever want to go back there. Right. And so what we've done is we've created a nine ninety nine monthly plan for people who just want the maintenance plan. Because, uh, cool. again, we don't want to take advantage of it. And, and we actually – we haven't rolled it out yet, but it's in production. We auto-downgrade you, so you don't even have to do anything. So as soon as you no longer have items to repair or we've attempted to dis- dispute an item – more than a few times, and we don't feel like we're, we're going to keep trying, but we don't want to charge you for it. We auto downgrade you to nine ninety nine ninety nine a month, where you're getting credit monitoring and kind of LifeLock type services for nine ninety nine a month. Yeah, and this is it's those kind of things that I think make your claim to be you know the consumer focused solution. Like it aligns your interests with your customers in a way that I think is is very admirable. You're absolutely right on the education piece. It's is absolutely true that more and more accurate and more impartial information needs to be available to people because they are trying to live their lives in a system where the information they're given is often coming from people that have a vested interest in only one aspect of that conversation, whether it's food or foreign policy or financial services or any of these things that touch everybody's lives, um, what are you going to do about that? How are you educate? What's the educational side of Dovely, or is there one yet? There will be. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, right now, the the primary product is the repair product. It's the algorithm. That's what we do. We have goals to create a, an, an education platform. And it's not just about education. It's about tactical things you can do immediately. So it's less about writing insanely long blogs and, you know, trying to educate you. It's about if you do nothing, go do these three things. If you're in this situation, go do this. Uh, So making sure that people, wherever they are in their credit journey, whether they're new to this country or new to credit because they're young, 
They know what they need to do to bail, build their credit to, and, and to not get into trouble. Whether you need the repair, you've already in a situation where you've needed something, you, you have derogatory items on your credit, how to repair those items. And then lastly, once you've repaired it, how do you maintain the credit score today? So there's a lot of things people don't know that are very simple things. So if you have a credit card that's in good standing— if you're like me, you just want to close it because I don't want all these credit cards open and I'm totally type A. I, you know, I want If I'm not using it, I want it kind of gone. Well, that's not good in credit because you don't want to close an account that's in good standing. That actually reduces your credit. Right. And so— Because not only is the account closed, it now lowers your credit total limit. available credit, Correct. which means your utilization rate is— Higher. Very much higher. Correct. Et cetera, et cetera. Correct. Yeah. So— Again, nobody talks about those things. Nobody tells you those things. So Dovely has a real opportunity. If you think about education, like we have a real opportunity to partner with universities to provide a very good education to students and inform them very early on how to make the right decisions. And because we're a technology solution, we can do that for a very, very, very low monthly fee. Uh, and so, so that's kind of— yeah, I, I, we should, you and I should talk more about that offline because that's something I'm very passionate about and have uh, some experience in. And I also think it's the way forward. I mean, if you look at the way in which education is becoming both more specialized and more widely available, uh, you know, as much as I am a product of the elite university system, uh, I in no way see that as the the future. Right. Um, it, you know, it's very much you know a part of a part of the past, and it still has some value, et cetera. But um, if you think about some of the other innovations over the last, I don't know, eight or ten years, uh, I'm thinking of, for example, the Mint.coms and the Betterment and the Robinhood mm-hmm. and the things that are trying to solve right. other aspects of this. And they do bake education right. in. Absolutely. Right. In some cases, that's the, the foundation. The, the, yeah, it's the point. The, the first point of contact is, hey, free financial whatever. Uh, what do you see that you will need to do differently because those have all played out in different ways, and I'm not familiar enough with the with the history of those companies to know much about this. I'm just that they exist yeah. <laughs> is about the limit of what I know here. Um, but when it comes to the way in which they've formed partnerships, or the way they've reached customers, or the way in which they've added an educational foundation to it, what needs to happen differently, specific to credit, uh, that you would see as a as a major innovation in the future? Is that something you're prepared to say yet, or don't know? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that need to happen, and I don't. I don't think it's like one thing. Uh, I think it's access. It's making sure that you're getting our mind share these days is so torn between so many different things, and so I think the biggest challenge is getting the person's mind share before it's too late, before they've already hurt their credit, um, and. There's an opportunity. All of these products you just described are complementary products. They, we don't view them as competitors. Right? Exactly. So That's why I'm using them. Because if you want to manage your own money, yeah. you want to make your own investments, it really does come together. And I think, just from what I know about these companies, that we share similar values, ethos, uh, love of the consumer. And so there's an opportunity to partner with a lot of these companies and deliver services across multiple types of consumers. And if we can stay true to being a really good product that services a really big need in a very customer-first mindset, that we're going to win. Yeah, I agree. Just to share another kind of random thought here, my seven-year-old 
and I were talking the other day. Um, we have a bunch of uh, books that were published by a company called Usborn. Usborn Books, kids' books. It's a UK-based company, um, and they've been around a while. But there's also an app that uh, we have on the Kindles that the kids are using um, that's called Teacher Monster How to Read. And my seven-year-old realized that the Teacher Monster How to Read app was created by the Usborn book publisher. Okay. And it's a very traditional books. I mean, they've been around for decades, right? And so he was asking me, he's like, Daddy, why, why does Usborn Books have an app that teaches people how to read? I had never thought of this right. before, but I'm like, well, that's actually a really great question. Why do you think? And he said, he eventually got to what was the, the right answer, which is, well, if they've helped you before you know how to read, you're going to be more loyal. Right. You're going to like them. You're going to feel good about them. And I immediately started to think about all the opportunities for this. Mazda, we drive Mazdas. We like them. They're a great driver's car. Uh, Mazda's just announced they're not going to make any new models for the next two years, that they really are going to go deep into their process to develop a new engine platform and things of that nature. So no new Mazdas for two years. That's a very risky move. But I thought, what could Mazda do? Nobody at Mazda is asking me this, but I just thought, (laughs) you know, what could Mazda do? They could develop uh, the Mazda driver driving school right. for 15 and 16-year-olds. And it could be pop-ups. It could be all over the place. Like, you go there where they are. You give them an amazing experience. You teach them some really cool stuff. And, of course, safety right, and all right, the things. Right. But it's a cool, thrilling experience. Think of how this would play out on TikTok and everywhere. Like, this is going to be cool. Like, Mazda needs the Mazda driving school. Now I'm thinking for you, not that you asked me, but hey, um, what could Dovely do that would actually get earlier long before these people are customers of yours or anybody's, right? What could happen there? I'm saying, well, you need to teach your monster how to read of credit. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. But now we're talking really grand scheme of things. Well, we have a lot of grand scheme things. Our our, our challenge is to f- – we're going to have to focus on – one at a time. Right, for sure. And I, I look at the clock here. I've gotten very carried away on a number of points in this conversation. I want to wrap up. Let's talk about that near future, not the far out, distant, like five years right. and beyond. Uh, but but what's coming? What are you most excited about both for Dovely and for the broader uh, uh, industry in general over the next 12 months? What When you look forward, what's really getting you fired up? Being able to... So we launched a product... Very early, and we see all the flaws in that product, and we have a a roadmap to get all those flaws corrected. And so the ability to deliver a much better customer experience gets us really excited. The ability to continue to refine the algorithm, we're getting better. I just, you know, you said six months. We're now at four months. Uh, 50% of our customers are seeing major improvements in one month. And so being able to refine that algorithm layer on kind of machine learning uh, is really, really exciting for us. Being able to truly change the industry, being able to provide an opportunity to people who are getting rejected for financial reasons, at the same time providing value to companies, trying to service them, uh, that's really exciting to us. I mean, there's there's infinite numbers of things that are extremely exciting to us. I am always super excited when there is a very complex and seemingly intractable problem that can be solved with an efficient application of technology and a bit of creative outside-the-box thinking. Like, well, why can't we go directly and electronically to these companies? It's very, very cool. As you 
described the way people can get on the service now. If somebody has listened to this and like, I need that, I want that now, what should their next step be? Uh, just go to doubly.com and enroll. Uh, you know, we do try to work with anyone. So if it's cost prohibitive for anyone for any reason, you can chat with our support agents or send us an email. Uh and uh, and we'll work with you to and get on. You system. said you're spending almost no money on on marketing. Yeah, we're not doing any marketing right now because you're you're still taking the MVP to the next level. So or? Our, our our approach was to so by partnering with channel partners, we're able to secure thousands of users and leverage their halo of their brand halo effect. So we're partnered with Chime Bank, fastest growing bank in America, Money Alliance, and more of the challenger banks, uh, and then. We are going to go direct to consumer probably in the next six months or so. We're also launching a product that, uh, if you think of it as like, uh, we currently have the Tesla. It has all the bells and whistles. It's a phenomenal product. But we want to launch a Toyota Prius. Still a great product, still delivering a great service, but much more basic and affordable. Uh, and then we can then pass that on to the consumer so we can have a product in market that's costing people $10 a month, $20 a month tops. If people want to learn more, if they want to discuss future partnerships, if they want to, how do they connect with you? Do they go to doubly.com? Yeah, you can email info at doubly.com. It'll come straight to us. Last question I want to ask you to close out the show. You have obviously lived and worked in many different environments. What's different about building something here in the Valley? You know, it's funny because I'm we, we we still do a lot of our business in the Bay Area and and people look down on Phoenix and I, I to me it's ridiculous. Like I I got lucky by coming to Phoenix. If Thomas hadn't recruited me, I would never have thought to come to Phoenix. And I chose to leave Nextiva and stay in Phoenix and build the business in Phoenix. It is the most accessible business community uh, I have ever seen. It is very collaborative. Uh, not cutthroat, but still genius, like ideas and entrepreneurs and talent. The talent that we have found here is as good as talent of, of Bay Area that I, you know, I've worked, I worked for Salesforce. It's one of the best companies in the planet. It, similar talent. I don't feel like we're compromising, compromising anything on talent. Uh, the only thing is it's just a lot cheaper to run a business here. And it's a government that actually wants you to succeed as opposed to in California where, Everything's working against you as a, as a small business. And so I view Phoenix as kind of like our lethal weapon. And it's always funny to me when I'm talking to investors and, you know, they're kind of making fun of me being in Phoenix. And I say, well, I guess if you like to throw money, then maybe, you know, California makes sense. But if you're trying to make a good business decision and run a business in a way that's thoughtful, then Phoenix makes a lot of sense. Nareet Rubenstein, CEO and co-founder of Dovely. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For all of us here at phx.fm, this is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio. Mm-hmm.